Is it possible to build a healthy home that isn't susceptible to rising energy costs? Concerned with climate change but don't know how to help? Can you start a business that is both profitable but will also help the local environment? Well, today's guest, Michael Sly, has challenged all of those issues head on, and this makes for an interesting and educational listen. Enjoy. And then came back to Queenstown, knowing how to break dance and (laughs) have an affiliation for shoes. Past, um, the, the smell during it was pretty potent. Not once in any of those think tank environments that I was involved with was um, the impacts of a global virus. And then they said, yeah, great, can you make 10 tonnes? And I think I'd made maybe a kilogram at that stage. to start to keep it humorous might be um, oh the dag oh yeah start at the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, I just came across that last night um, and it's quite humorous fun very Kiwi humour um, maybe you can discuss and explain to the listeners what oh the dag is okay yeah um, so oh it's actually it is quite a symbolic one that one um, I have recently been helping uh, Nadia Lim, who have uh, her and her partner Carlos, have um, uh, a station up on the Crown Range called Royalburn Farm, and Nadia comes from a a celebrity chef type history, yeah, and um, so is well known um, in New Zealand. They decided to do a TV show. It's on TV three, so it's on TV on demand. Um, called Nadia's Farm, and it's about their journey with their farm. Yeah, and it was actually when I was collecting food waste. So I, I run this model called Waste to Wilderness, which I can talk about later. But yeah, we'll um, get into that as well. But the um, I was actually collecting food waste from provisions, and when I was doing that, um, uh, Jane, who owns the shop shouted out to, uh, to Nadia and to myself to say you guys need to connect, connect. Yeah. <laughs> when I was at the cafe yeah similar values yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so um, we, we did there and then and I was explaining what I was doing with composting we got onto the conversation about their new abattoir which is a um, farm abattoir where, so they actually kill the lambs um, that are on their farm on the farm mm-hmm. um, and then they produce the meat that then gets shipped around the local right. community so it is that kind of localization model yeah. um which you know reduces a lot of stress for the animals and obviously a lot less transport energy goes yeah. into it for us as a consumer um but when you do that you generate a yeah. um the waste part of the animals um sadly in this case it was even the um the hide being the you know the the skin mm-hmm. um at the moment there isn't anyone who can use that locally so that that was going needing to be and and the normal process is that goes into what's called an offal pit mm-hmm. um so all of that decomposes in a anaerobic so non-oxygen way which creates a lot of methane and a lot of I guess toxicity generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just not a happy place, an awful pit. And so 
at that time I hadn't ever composted animals, but I had composted a lot of um, very gluggy food from the likes of buffets and so forth. Yeah. Um, so I felt... They're similar. Similar, yeah. yeah I felt conf- confident in the power of hot compost. Mm. Um, and then funny enough, I did Google, as you do, YouTube. And sadly, as part of the COVID situation, uh, I think there was a massive disruption in the pig industry in America. And there was this shot of a truck, a side-tipping massive truck that literally dumped, I think it was like 500 pigs into a kind of big row, which they, they then hot composted. Wow. And so I saw that and that gave me the confidence to say, well, it can be done yeah, and um, let's give it a go. Yeah. So so what I did is um, I set up using the Wilding Pine, another initiative, um, you know, the post-distillation mulch of the Wilding Pines, took that up to the farm and we mixed in the sheep and uh, hot composted the sheep. Wow. Um, and that that's worked really well. And up to this stage, I, I guess you could say about a 40-foot container of hot compost has actually consumed about uh, 2,000 Sheep, uh, lambs worth of um, really? waste. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So Over what period of time? Uh, about a year. Yeah. Mm. About 50 odd a week. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about 1,000 kgs, about a tonne a week of waste yeah. gets hot composted. Um, funny enough, the smell. What is breaking it down? Is the heat? Is the, that- the heat from the microbial yeah. action. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it is an incredible energy. I've actually mm. made. Um, I'll have to try it again this year, but I made a glass house that I put on top of a hot compost pile. To increase the heat. Yeah, because it's about 50, 60 degrees of temperature that you can actually um, capture. Yeah. So it was like a a natural underfloor heating system. Yeah. So that was quite interesting. But um, so sorry, that was a very long-winded way of um, saying... It was through that process that um, and that engagement that um, and I'd show them my distillation of the thyme, wild wild thyme, which they then turned into a soap. Yeah. Um, and so I com- combined two journeys, one being the waste of sheep and the uh, distillation process that I do. And I, what I saw were the, all the bags of, uh, literally of dags, yeah. <laughs> which is the wool mixed in with a bit of sheep poo off yeah. the back of the back of the sheep. Um, I saw that at the wall sheds and I was driving home and I was like, oh, I'm going to try and distill that. And so what happens is when I do my large wilding pine distillations, you often have waste energy at the or waste steam at the end of the yeah. cycle. And so I just um, plug in my little test still. Mm. And so, yeah, I distilled da- sheep dags. And um, <laughs> yeah. I must say, um, yeah, my partner wasn't too... Impressed yeah. when she came past. Um, the the smell during it was pretty potent, and I distill at night. So I did send a very random late night email to um, to Nadia and Carlos. Be- oh, sorry, I should I should mention I just done it. The, the power of going around collecting waste. That's when I connect with people. Um, I was yeah. in at um, altitude collecting their hops waste. So I collect the waste that, rather than that going to the landfill as altitude well. Altitude Brewery. Yeah, 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 Altitude Brewery. And um, I was just having a joke that I the night before I'd distilled some sheep dags, and then Elliot actually sent me a text only an hour later saying, "Oh my God, have you seen this?" And it was um, Elon Musk had just launched a burnt hair perfume and sold a million dollars worth wow. of burnt hair perfume through yeah. that boring company I think it was right. so I was like oh well there you go got some confidence so I thought oh that's interesting and 
because I was playing with that in my head and I just thought maybe I was being a bit extreme and a bit silly but then that yeah that gave me the confidence to email Nadia and, and team and said hey why don't we do a fun charity perfume based on yeah. <laughs> on, on the butt of the joke yeah. um, you know suddenly there's all these fun dag jokes um, talk about shit oh because then um, Matt Chisholm who was the director of the program is actually the rural ambassador um, and he goes around talking to farmers about mental health and so I teed him and, and um, yeah that whole let's talk about shit and yeah and, and yeah the concept of a little fun conversation like yeah. what, what we're having now it can it be used as an ice, icebreaker yeah exactly yeah exactly so we, I bottled the uh, stuff fragrance. <laughs> the, the fragrance and, and it, it was a bit like a fine wine it, it got better with time um, it settled down a wee bit and um, it literally, yeah, smells like you spray it. It smells like you've gone and walked into a wall shed. Yeah. Um, so it actually became quite a good fragrance. So we um, just did a limited edition run up to quite recently and had the DAG number one put up on Trade Me. And I think that made $500 for wow. the first bottle. And then, and then the rest were being sold as a package with the Time Soap and my daughter's little... Uh, she makes these little woolly sheep out of pipe cleaner, wire pipe cleaners and, and, and her pet sheep's wool. Yeah, yeah, I saw some photos. Yeah, really yeah. Cool. So um, fun little little sheep that went with some packages. Oh, yeah, we sold about 150 bottles in the end. Yeah, yeah. and it's a good little promotional fun sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds, and at the farm shop, it sounded like there were some situations like kids had left the farm, so one old retiree farmer was sending about five bottles around the world wow, to, to, to the kids yeah. <laughs> to remind them of their, <laughs> of, their, of their upbringing. I wonder, does that make them miss home or make them wish they weren't a home? Or, or, or be grateful. Yeah, yeah. be grateful. Yeah. I, I think a lot of farmers are like, I'm not touching it. It might be flashbacks, I think, <laughs> um, retired farmers. But, um, but it was interesting spraying it in front of a few friends because it does show that um, the power of... Um, Fragrance memory. Yeah, it's, I was going to say that. Yeah, it's connected to your long-term memory in your yeah. brain. And um, one person I sprayed it to, it took her back to about the age of eight, going to the Walter Peak um, farm show. So it's it, just instantly gave her that visual memory. Yeah, yeah. It's so that amazing. was 40, yeah. 40 odd years in her past life. Yeah, so that was quite quite interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, a big part of you, a massive part of your whole ethos is environmental awareness and change and um, for me my journey into becoming more environmentally aware probably came through consuming media netflix uh, podcasts and slowly slowly started to see documentaries and things with people like david attenborough and i remember at first being maybe overwhelmed thinking fuck we're we're ruining the planet thinking about personally how i live my life pretty much everything we were doing was wrong mm. And you make little changes and you think, oh, even that's wrong. And it left feeling very helpless and there's nothing we can do sort of thing. And it took a while of that uh, before I started to sort of learn that every little helps. That kind of mentality. And not to feel guilty and not to beat yourself up about things, but just do little tiny changes where you can. And we started to do little things and started to feel a lot better about ourselves. And really, instead of being closed off and afraid of all those things we're doing wrong, we're open-minded to change. And mm. as I got into that journey, then I started getting more and more into it. And that's when I became eventually aware of people like yourself. And the reason I'm talking about this is I was wondering, what was your journey mm. um, like? And bring us back to the early stages when you started to realise something's not right and, and, and make some changes. Yeah, so... Uh, to be honest, mine's 
intergenerational really my mother came from uh, a farm I guess being the the female you don't generally take over the farm Mm. so she ended up coming to Queenstown from down south and I say that probably because if you go back to farming in general there is quite a heavier element of um, stewardship that exists just as a general rule even though that's Maybe not the way things are presented at the moment, but you know, they're obviously their job is to care, and um, they love the land. In general. Yeah, they love the land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I think that that's a kind of an underlying feature. My mother, I think she might have read that in the seventies. That book. Oh, now I can't remember it. It was the first book that really explained the impacts of, of weed killers and mm. and all the toxins that and the impact on the earth. Right. And yeah, maybe we could do a link to it once I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> We'll put a link in the bio. So my mum, back in the 70s, she was already pretty much organic um, back then. Um, she'd studied at Lincoln doing horticulture, um, but she ended up being the first person to grow grapes in central Otago. Yeah. So, my, um, so she's a wine. She became interested in wine. And as a, probably in her early 20s, she was told explicitly by all the university people that it was impossible to grow grapes in central <laughs> Otago. Um, so she, actually, she didn't listen. No, she didn't. She travelled, I think, Australia first and then over to um, south of France, Alsace. Oh, just an interesting side note, she, when she was in there, she got taken into the headquarters to meet the president of Moe, Sharon, wow. because she was to go back to New Zealand and tell them that they weren't allowed to use the word champagne. Wow. So <laughs> that was an interesting situation. Because that's happened, hasn't it? That's yeah, it has. become a law now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yeah, it has. It yeah. has. Places. But that's only happened in recent times, hasn't it? That, yeah, yeah, I think in the yeah. last... Yeah, so you've got to call it what you, method... Method Champagne Noir or whatever it is. You yeah. can't actually call it champagne. But yeah, so she, she did that and then... Came back to New Zealand, set up, you know, as a pioneer. Yeah. Kind of the old classic bleeding edge, not leading edge, you know, so you make all the you make all the um, <laughs> like mistakes for everyone yeah. else to not, you know, things about where is the best environment, frost, what varieties. So yeah. actually the first grapes that are in the region were actually growing up the very top of Dalefield. Right, yeah. That's where mum did all her trials on my grandmother's property. Yeah. Um, and then and then she bought the land that we still live on on Speargrass Flat. Yeah. So yeah, so, that's where you get your pioneering spirit from. You think yeah, exactly. So yeah. there's a growing up watching, you know, high risk situations, mm. and you know, so I had a tolerance, yeah, higher tolerance than normal, and, and saw yeah, saw failure, but yeah. saw reward and as well. And you maybe realise that failure isn't so scary. It's, no, yeah. no, it's part of the journey yeah and yes there is that conversation in New Zealand say compared to America where we do frown upon failure rather than accept it as part of a um part of learning a constructive part of learning it's only a failure if you fail twice at the same thing (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean means you haven't learned from your mistakes yeah so yes anyway that she um treated the property as pretty much organic so I wonder how that is with timelines because I have an idea in my mind that maybe two generations ago everything probably was organic and then it started from commercialism started they started introducing more fertilizers and stuff like that yeah it is a very recent say 30s 40s on and it was a reaction to I guess the pressure to produce more a a part of this whole hyperinflation journey of everything and And um, now we're kind of trying to steer the ship back towards organic mm, again mm. And localised and sustainable yep. practices. Yep. And it's been interesting actually jumping back to being up at Royal Burn Farm because there's that conversation recently about whether well, there's you know, regenerative farming 
And then you've also got the conversation even between um, significantly vegetarian slash vegan versus the consumption of meat. You know, you've got all these different... I think as a local community, we get fed a global conversation. And if you do look at like some global, say, meat practices... Uh, they are very industrialised um, and and very disconnected from uh, environmental cycles, one could say. Um, but but in New Zealand, it's different. And then if you then look, interesting enough, if you start to look at farming systems like just like um, maybe the prairie plains of the Midwest with buffalo or whatever, like there is always an interrelationship or or through Europe. Generally speaking, there's a relationship between crops and animals, and the rotational methodologies that you can use yeah. um, are actually quite are one of the only ways you can reduce the reliance on fertilizers and and chemical uh, weed care. The animals introduce the fertilizer for you naturally. Yeah, yeah and so, they yeah. treat the soil. Certain animals treat the soil in different or the yeah. the land in different ways. Yeah, and then which enable then crops to flourish. Um, so so it is quite interesting when you extremify anything. So if you go full crop, then you're hyper-reliant on artificial inputs. Yeah. Um, and then ironically, a lot of the artificial inputs are uh, animal-based blood proteins and you know um, blood and bone and yeah. things like that anyway that go to, to grow crops um plus yeah plus then all the chemicals required to yeah. spray weeds and and so forth um so it's yeah so they're trying to almost replicate what nature was already doing yeah yeah i got there yeah kind mm. of cyclic um you know animals used to browse and shift across the landscape mm. seasonally yeah um so i guess so that I think when you so when you think of regenerative um, practice around land, yeah, it's often and permaculture gets into that a wee bit as well. So your journey into environmental awareness was pretty much from birth, really. It was yeah. passed down. Yeah, yeah, and then so when I I studied industrial design, and probably the main thing that was happening then was a book called Cradle to Cradle. They were discussing how you could at that time it was about the importance of keeping industrial cycle separate from organic mm-hmm. so for example like let's say it's a plastic it had a continuous so that they're very against the word recycle because often sorry the way re, the word recycle is being used because it was, it was actually down cycling so each time something was being reconsumed it, it was at a lower state and so it was basically on the way to the waste being a waste so um, the quality was maybe reducing each yeah. time it was recycled yeah exactly yeah. so there was a lot of work being done on systems and processes William Donahue yeah Cradle to Cradle was the book and actually the book was plastic and it was trying to articulate that all the pages were of a type of material that was way easier to re to properly recycle than say a paper book yeah which would um as a form of the paper recycling would become a lower quality yeah product each yeah. time so it was trying to be representative of, the, of that yeah. and the fact the book would last you know could have water spilt on it and all this other stuff so it was yeah. far more durable so it was almost saying the plastic was a better option yeah, recycling. yeah. If you looked at and and its life cycle, you like, could sort of mess with the composition of the plastic when you recycle it to bring it back to a high yeah. grade. And yeah. the book would last hypothetically a thousand years without degradation. True. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's true. The reality with all materials is you got to respect. It's often disrespect of them that is causing the issue, not the mm. actual material itself. 
you know, so a plastic that doesn't degrade is really important, but if it's how we treat it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And actually the ones that degrade as we are finding now are actually far worse because they that's what's generating this kind of micro plastic issue, you know, like so the plastic bags that were degrading were far worse than the ones that actually yeah. stay. Yeah, um, becoming microplastics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, keeping things local, um, Queenstown, we both live in Queenstown. Mm. You've lived here all your life. It's quite a unique place. We're surrounded by mountains and it sometimes feels like a bubble. Um, and it's such a, a melting pot of different cultures, people from different age groups. You find anything from billionaires to backpackers and everything in between. Yeah. And all these things come together to make a really unique place. I haven't experienced anywhere mm. quite like Queenstown in the world. Yeah, I agree. What would you say are some of the benefits and some of the drawbacks of that kind of community? Yeah. Um, so I grew up here, um, yeah, Arrowtown Primary. And then um, my mother actually shifted to doing psychotherapy or uh, counselling, sorry. Mm-hmm. So at that stage, we had to go to the UK to, for her to learn that right. so I lived in London for a year when I was about 11 so I went from 100 kids at Arrowtown to over 1,000 kids at a concrete jungle and so that, that was an interesting um, different world like different a world yeah. to its negative yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then came back to Queenstown knowing how to break dance and <laughs> have an affiliation for shoes um, <laughs> valuable traits yeah 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 um, so yeah so that was probably quite an important little segue to understand how other parts of the world work. Yeah, I found growing up here, people that wanted to be academic were able to kind of be academic, but probably one of the interesting things that were unique, I imagine still was kind of the case, is there was things like that branches camp and a lot of outdoor activities Mm. that were actually quite high-risk activities. And so what was interesting about that was um, you learn kind of responsibility of yourself and others and um and then i look at most of the kids that came out of that bit all different spectrums of life i think they all had the confidence that the outdoor activity provided was probably quite an important attribute um that's great very beneficial to kids growing up yeah yeah those things yeah exactly um and then i guess me growing up when i did which was 80s 80s and 90s um, was very much the start of adventure tourism world. Yeah. Um, so as 15 year olds, we were yeah rafting down the side of a river and um, technically meant to be learning how to take Taiwanese bus trips down as well, which was probably the most scary thing I'd ever seen. What's that? Is that? Oh, just well they, they had you know groups of tourists that were being thrown on these boats, and often some most of them possibly didn't even know how to swim. Yeah. You know, and um, and just the things that would happen, like they'd starfish in the water and go into shock, and oh, good, oh it, was just, yeah. it was crazy. Because you grew up in this environment, and you, as kids, were brought out to these places and did camping, yeah. and yeah, you understood the dangers. But these guys had no idea. No, no, they didn't know fish they out of water. Yeah, they yeah. literally were. <laughs> so that was um, interesting to watch. Yeah, uh, early the early adventure tourism, um, going and stealing bungee cord to make our own not not to jump off things, but to bungee things off bridges that were rocks or stuff like that. We go find yeah. the old bungee cord. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so, so it was interesting watching that Queenstown go through all these quite pioneering cycles. And There's a massive influx of different cultures from all over the world here in Queenstown. Like, yeah. A guy I worked with at a Queenstown local said to me once some people travel the world, but the world travels around me. And yeah, what yeah. He meant is he could meet people from all different cultures all over the world right here in his own backyard. What has that brought to the community and the area? 
Did, yes. Did that start happening around that time when the venture tourism? Yep. Yeah, it did. And, and there was um, different cycles of who the people were. Mm. So back then, one of the strongest were, were Japanese. Right, yeah. And um, and you can actually see that now where there was often a, a lot of, I think a lot of Japanese, possibly a lot of Japanese women that may have been trying to escape the... Um, Constructs of of, um, of Japanese culture um, and the rigidity of it in certain ways, especially for women. And so then there end up being quite a lot of um, marriages, I guess, and, and then, yeah, a lot yeah. of Japanese uh, kids. And, and I guess you could say in more recently, yeah, the introduction of people from Brazil, for example, you know, like that. There was so it's been really interesting watching the different um, groups, communities yeah. that have formed from different areas of the world in Queenstown. So yeah, and each and each group brings this whole different culture world to, to the area, like you say. And it is, it's, and, and then you you know you only need to travel twenty minutes out of this town, and then it goes back to something completely the opposite yeah. of, of of what we are. So Queenstown is not representative of the normal South Island town. No, yeah. no, no, it's it's not. Yeah, so I think it has brought an openness, you know, so there's not the same constructs um, as you find probably in other parts of the local area, region, yeah. It might um, give way to more liberal thinking because mm. I guess if you make a friendship with uh, someone who has a completely different mindset to you, you're more open to that way of thinking. Yep, yep, that's right. Um, yeah. More cosmopolitan, and um, and yeah, I've I've been part of think tanks and and uh, you know shaping our future, and and what one thing I have noticed is um, a, a lot of the pain points are quite constant; they haven't changed. You know, so accommodation, for example, yeah, one way or another has always been a, a pain point. Growth, the the impacts of growth is a um, another yeah. type of pain point, and the only time it hasn't those pain points haven't existed were possibly around the global financial crisis and then around COVID. You know, they're the only times that that growth curve hasn't continued. Yeah, so that's um, been interesting challenges to to watch. Mm. As I'm listening to you speak, I'm getting clues of your education. You did industrial design yeah, and yeah. you spoke earlier about being a problem solver. Mm. When when you speak about Queensland and the community, you talk about little issues and you're always looking for places that improvements could be made or where's the problem I can solve, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny because when you... Do you know one thing, though, that was really interesting? Not once in any of those think tank environments that I was involved with was um, the impacts of a global virus mm. <laughs> ever communi- discussed as, yeah. a, as a threat, um, which was really quite interesting to show just how unexpected or un- technically unprepared we were for yeah, that type. Yeah, everyone was blindsided by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was often infrastructure-based with earthquakes. and Yeah. Which we have to be real about. That one hasn't disappeared. <laughs> yeah. You know, the reality of that one. Yeah. Um, and even power, you know, power getting into the space. And, and, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, yeah, it's been interesting. Um, we were... Uh, we were very close to buying a house just before the pandemic and um, mm. the prices are crazy and they're getting more and more expensive and I've come from Ireland where I've seen um, my family members my sister bought a house right at the very peak of the boom in Ireland yeah the GFC one yeah, yeah, yeah that one and literally less than a year later her house the house next door was sold for half the value yep exact same house yep um, so that made me kind of very wary and scared because everything all the trends I saw back then mm-hmm. I was seeing happening here yep um, but when I was trying to rationalise it, I said in my head, well, there'll always be tourism. So worst case scenario, if we're struggling to afford repayments, mm. we can rent it out to tourists. Mm. Mm. And then this happened. And the one thing that I thought we'd always have, tourism was gone. Yeah. 
just yeah. like that overnight yeah um, so you never really know it's around the corner no no you don't and and that shows the importance of that constant conversation about diversification yeah. and um, other forms of resilience and this town is far more resilient um, so when I grew up you were closed for six months of the year yeah right? because there were no tourists yeah. so for 15 years Destination Queenstown's journey was about trying to fill holes in the year you know so those dead patches then, then we achieved that that more uniform tourism but they didn't stop it <laughs> you know it was like they just kept feeding this machine and then we'd start to see the impact Impacts of um, the starts of the impacts of over tourism and and the impact risks associated with that on infrastructure and costs as a rate base were extremely small and then we meant to pay for poo management of two million people from the rate base of twenty thousand you know. Um, and just little yeah so it was quite interesting issues but yeah a lot of the time that can reduce through diversification even the wine industry you know that didn't exist before like say mum and others uh, yeah. Alan Brady and so forth got into that yeah it's a big thing now and now it's quite an important yeah. and it's a different type of tourism so yeah. you've got the adventure tourism and then you've got you yeah. know, what you call romance tourism um, different demographic yeah different demographic um, and so I think even within tourism you need to consider your diversification and we even saw as a brand for Queenstown we became very un-New Zealand so a lot of New Zealanders nearly didn't like yeah. Queenstown yeah. Um, so then we saw in COVID before COVID people didn't care about that brand consideration but then they were the only people we could rely on and there was a lot of potentially there would have been more people that came here if they didn't have that perception of being left out or being not considered it's so nice um, to go on a hike or something or even on a trail walk and hear Kiwi voices again mm, yeah. during the COVID period yeah, yeah. Did it. Kiwis are out, outnumbered here quite often. Oh, very much yeah. so. Yeah, that'd only be 10% of the yeah. of, of pre-COVID um Which is makeup. amazing, because this is New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, what I also, on that level, my consideration around that is that we needed to start stop being so Queenstown focused. We need to have a more of a regional yeah. approach. Celebrate Cromwell, Clyde, yeah. Alex, down south, Tianau, you know, like so yeah. tourists because of Instagram we hyper localize to, to famous spots. But yeah, it's still not that message still isn't that strong. I mean we should be flying into Dunedin and doing the Catlins, then get into Queenstown or um, you know, big jets going to Invercargill and then yeah. going to Milford, then coming to Queenstown. Spread that, the love. Spread spread it, exactly. Mm. Then then you don't have the impacts. Mm. Yeah, well, everyone is drawn here because it's marketed so well, Queenstown. Exactly. Mm. Um, but when you get here, like myself, it takes a couple of years before you realise, well, outside of Queenstown is where the real beauty is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's everywhere, all those places you just mentioned, like yeah. Flatlands and the West Coast and anywhere. You go half an hour in any direction and you're in the middle of nature in a beautiful scenic place. That's know? right. But there was that fear slash greed that have kept the story narrative quite local. So, I mean, so it's funny enough I say that even because if we reverse engineer that back to environmental conversations, it's yeah. the same thing. It's about often risks come from being too intensive, too focused in one area or un- un- unbalanced, you know? Yeah. So, and often the best way to mitigate something is to, yeah, spread the load. Mm-hmm. I suppose with business, profits come from becoming efficient and that comes from economy of scale and yep. all of those things go against the natural run of things yeah you're absolutely right because um, profit based models around tourism require more more bums on seats um, it's hard to double the cost of an experience yeah there's a lot of interesting tensions in tourism around 
how you became on my radar. It's talked earlier about my journey into environmental awareness personally and it started off with consuming media and changing my mindset a little bit. Then I think we started making changes to our lifestyle, me and Marina. One of those was getting a plot in the Queenstown Gardens and yep. producing our own food. Yes, I helped set that up. Yeah, you taught me, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah originally. And yeah. it's a great initiative. It's mm. a great little community there. Yeah. Um, um, something else I remember, I think I used to work in Narrowtown, Millbrook, and I lived on Littles Road, so I would come oh, across yeah. Speargrass Flats quite often. And I remember your house being built at Passive Home. Yes. And there was a little bit of media about it too. And at the time, that wasn't really commonplace. It was a new thing. Yeah, it was the first one, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, the building itself was different. You know, it caught my attention. Mm. Um, I didn't really know the whole story behind it, and slowly I got to know, and um, around that time, joined the gardens, and a few years later, Later, then I heard about the, the wilding pine deforestation and then your initiative um, around that. Around mm. that, yeah. Mm. So, for my gardens, we needed compost for one of our new garden beds, and someone pointed me in your direction. And then all the dots sort of connected. I spoke mm. to you for half an hour, and you told me um, about your house. Well, I saw the house and about yeah. um, the wilding pine initiative. Can you talk to us about those, um, Mr. Chippy, wilding pine, and maybe firstly the passive home? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so um, that started probably because of that industrial design type mindset, that kind of idea of that the way I live as I often, rightly or wrongly, you know, sometimes it's a bad thing, you know, it's a certain type of lifestyle, but I'm always looking to solve problems or improve yeah. or change things. I, I do it as well in my work, you know, I'm always looking for the faults that I can improve. Yeah. So sometimes your headspace gets stuck in the problems a little bit too much. It might not yep. be good for your mental well-being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And... um. But the good side is you're always improving. Yes, yeah, yes. The product yeah. improves. Whether your mindset's in a good place or not is a different question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I find myself, you know, reverse engineering back to what my mother was doing and risk and nearly uh, disruptive, quite disruptive. Right. And so I, I'm quite interested in significant change. Most systems, especially profiteering systems, hate significant change because they are making profit in the now and they don't want to change. And so if they're making massive amounts of waste or using huge amounts of energy or whatever it might be, they're not going to change because there's no reason to do so. So a lot of my journeys are often around trying to communicate, you know, 10 steps forward, possibly. Mm. Um, So if you look at the housing, what that was, was I was considering building and I looked at the existing systems and went, oh my God, these are 100 years old, you know. Um, and actually, I remember there was an ad for a local pink insulation <laughs> that was celebrating that they hadn't changed what they did for 50 years. <laughs> and I was like, what industry can, can you get away with with saying that you've provided exactly the same solution yeah. for 50 years? And um, that pretty much showed how crap... New Zealand standards were and it's funny I was just talking to someone about this the other day probably the houses in the 1900 range were healthier and more balanced than the ones that were in the 70s and 80s and stuff because we started tightening the buildings without any consideration for internal ventilation and and moisture management and stuff like that so the older houses that quite venti naturally actually more balanced uh, even though they were colder uh, possibly didn't have a number of the issues that were present. 
yeah. in houses for the last 30 years. So, um, you know, like leaky building and so forth. So, yes, yeah, so I kind of, um, again, looked at global best practice. Oh, I thought about container-based homes, thought about importation of homes. Then where I got to was kind of like a Lego-like mindset. Yeah. Um, there is um, something like that now with timber, like click together. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Lego is like models at the moment are, are CLT if it's pure timber mm-hmm. um, or um, in my instance it was um, structural insulated panels yeah and um, so that's basically strand board uh, timber fibre board yeah um, with insulation in the middle yeah. and then timber board on the other side again exactly yeah. and, and the module is based around uh, those sheet sizes of the orientated strand board yeah. materials and actually OSB is interesting because it's a use of timber it's basically pressed timber fibre yeah um, and often you don't need very good quality you don't need old growth timber to, to make yeah. to make that material that, that sheet material so that was quite interesting as well um, and it's very, obviously in America it's a their entire all American homes are made with OSB mm. as a sheathing product so yes I um, I even went to the states and looked at different building methodologies yeah. and yet yeah, we decided that I was going to build a home that was international best practice and at that stage yeah there was this concept of passive house but it was actually still mainly around Germany and um, it was in German <laughs> so um, a lot of Google Translate yeah, yeah. Back, I think Google had just started their translation models back then, yeah. so I would use that a lot. And actually, America just started to look at it, yeah. and it became a lot easier to consume because Americans are great at communicating. So, and they were very much in the early days as well. So, uh, so what is for the listeners who don't know, uh, passive home? So you've got a well insulated shell to start with, yeah. But what what makes it passive is its use of energy. Is that correct? Yeah. So. What I liked about Passive House, and actually there's another system in the north of Italy called uh, Casa Clima, mm. um, and they were very similar. And what they both did is they requested, they're based on more like science, of your climate. So maybe even going back to the grapes, I was aware of microclimates, so even within a region. So that there's a eight degree fluctuation between Kelvin Heights by the lake of Queenstown and Arrowtown. So you've actually got two very different climates just in yeah. 20 kilometres difference. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, like I say, I knew that from the grapes. Knew, I knew where every frost area in this basin was. Mm. Um, so I um, liked the idea that your house was formulated. You inputted the uh, climate data from your local region. So in this case, it was often from the, air, the airport. Yeah, Frankton Airport. So I knew we were about 20% colder and 20% hotter than the Frankton Airport data. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you, so you input that information into this uh, spreadsheet, and it would tell you to achieve a 20 degrees kind of average temperature, the amount of insulation that's required the spreadsheet would also allow for your windows and the placement of your windows um so really nice scientifically backed you know very traceable way of saying well does a house work or not Um, i like that as a model because then you never over or underused anything so in auckland the house needs far less insulation than a house in queenstown and keep warm but how about keep it cool um, they're they're quite a moderate temperature yeah, actually on yeah. the on the high end too. Yeah. But yes, you are right. 
um, passive house does stop. It's more, it's kind of like a fridge. It stops external impacts. Yeah. So yeah. if it's hot or cold, it, it doesn't impact on your internal yeah. living. And so, yeah, the makeup of a passive house is insulation, air tightness mixed with control ventilation. Really, it's those two things working yeah. in unison that create and a... the glass, like the sunlight, does that um, bring heat into the house? Yeah, yeah. So, but again, that's um, managed. So you could overheat your fridge, <laughs> your mm. controlled environment, by having too much glass, say, to the west when the sun sets is yeah. a real high risk. Is that part of the calculation? Yeah, yeah. so you then have to have shading mm-hmm. uh, calculations. Yeah, so everything's considered. And so because what you often see is there's like a lot of houses, say, in Jacks Point or Queenstown Hill that might get up to 40 degrees in the afternoon because they're getting cooked because they want to have the views, but they're also getting blasted with late afternoon sun. So in a passive house, that would all be negated. So it's a very functionalist way of designing. So a lot of houses are designed based on function rather yeah. than um I, I am a functionalist yeah so i see beauty and fun so i don't have to see some weird funny angle for the sake of it if you know <laughs> what i mean um so yeah. yeah so yeah and it was also then a model that people could repeat and replicate and and that's what happened and so yeah my house was it's almost become commonplace now it's yeah much more acceptable yeah. so if he said if you said any of those words six seven years ago no one knew what they were yeah. and so coming from a design background i mixed that building journey with also communicating so i had facebook and got it on magazines and tv and stuff yeah. like that i did that purposefully because i wanted to allow the consumer to understand what was possible and that mm. that is at that stage it was 90 yeah. percent energy efficient than the new zealand code and doing so, it here in a place like queenstown is a great example to anybody else because the climate is extreme yeah Extreme colds, extreme heat. Yeah, so minus yeah. 10 to 40 degrees yeah. um, at, on that house spot. Yeah, well, yeah that's yeah. a big swing around. Yeah. So people watching those videos you've made will see, yeah. well, if they can do that, achieve that in Queenstown, mm. it can be done anywhere else in New Zealand. Exactly. And yeah. so, so the disruptive element was by the consumer being conscious of what was possible, they will drive... Um, expectations and change and that's what's happened and even the New Zealand building code is heading not quite right but yeah. still in that direction yeah and I think in Ireland now well for a few years now an energy rating on your house yeah it's um, a requirement yep New Zealand is catching up which is great to see it's been behind for a long time for example my dad's house which is probably being built 25 years would have a higher energy rating than this house that we're sitting in today yep. Yep. And this was only built four years ago. Yep, no, um, exactly. That's partly tax system as well in New Zealand where right. you're rewarded to build badly because the <laughs> cheaper it is, the more tax-free speculative rewards you can get. And so so again, it's like, you know, we just changed from single glazing to double glazing in the last maybe yeah. 15 years. So a person would be questioning buying a house with single glazing if there were two side by side when the one beside had double glazing. So there are market-driven interests in, in more energy-efficient homes. Yeah. As a whole, you're rewarded to yeah, build cheaper. You're rewarded to build badly. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's such a shame. Mm, I think in is it, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but I think in Europe, or it was starting to see. But if you sell too quickly, then you get taxed more. Uh, yeah, and capital gains. Yeah, 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 that helps the potential of. Um, well, this house is in shot of a country, and it's a classic example. It was designed for families, and what's happened is it's become an investment property sort of place. You know, yeah. Buying and flicking on, or yeah. buying and renting out. 
I, I did an interesting analysis because another big reason I did it was um, the concept of energy poverty. Um, and what I mean by that is that, as an example, you know, people can have $1,000 even more energy bills in winter in Queenstown. And often you see impacts of, like, say, may rent or own a home and then they have a child and the energy bill triples because they didn't actually heat their house before, before yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and things like that. And um, and that causes poverty because suddenly you're a large amount of your income. And I did an interesting analysis because this subdivision was being built at the same time as my house. Mm-hmm. And I worked out a calc based on money going to mortgages that was being spent on energy waste. It worked out over a 20-year mortgage, I think it was about $80,000 difference. And also, I think I paid off the mortgage four years faster if I used the money that was being spent on energy waste being yeah. inputted into a mortgage. So that energy waste you're saving would be on a passive house like yours? Yeah, 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 yeah. But so, what's the cost? What's the initial cost difference like? Um, it was. So you're saving money on a bigger mortgage. Yeah. Well, see, that, that was an interesting situation because, okay, so compared to your lowest common denominator, it, it was more expensive. But I was comparing it to probably a house that had central heating. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean. So yeah. What I mean by that is a house that had underfloor heating, a heat pump, a lot of active heating sources. Yeah. And that money was about forty to fifty thousand dollars at the time to spend to central heat a home. Yeah, right. Um so I spent nearly that mirror amount of money on ventilation and more expensive um triple glazing. Yeah. So I spent so in both instances if you take your lowest form of housing add 50 grand either for central heating or for and so yeah it makes financial sense to do it your way yeah because if I you did, look at it over a long period that's of time. right because i didn't have the running yeah the running cost and even more so if you look at how things are changing at the moment where oil prices petrol prices are yeah. increasing electricity prices are increasing because it would have been a diesel boiler yeah. as well so would have tripled since then in, in cost of uh, and who knows fuel. what's going to come around the corner where like all these fossil fuels are getting rare and more mm. expensive as yeah. time goes on yeah. exactly yeah so it was a bit of a crazy calc I think it worked out over a hundred years that this subdivision was going to cost a billion dollars more um, to the continuous ownership model mm-hmm than um, if they'd built the whole subdivision to passive house standards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the community was con- continually wasting money uh, yeah. on energy for 100 years, and that's what it, the cumulative impact was. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah, you're aware of those facts and figures, and you've done it, but not everyone has the same mindset of, as you. Like You kind of dive into change and the unknown, yep. but most people are um, afraid of change or resistant to change. Yep, and I think... I should mention it's really this is a really important fact because some people can feel quite um, disempowered um, when they see other people doing things, and you do have to really consider your historic situation. So for me, I took that risk because Mum had bought some land forty years before. Yeah, you know, realistically, I wouldn't have been able to take that risk. Yeah, without that consideration, there's a little bit of privilege. Uh, yeah. Yep, yeah, very much so, and yeah. so, um, and and I and but I also say that there's a lot of things that actually do take intergenerational support, if you know what I mean, or stewardship. Yeah, yeah. I think we we talked about that, you know, like the farming kind of thing, and, and and so it is important as a community that we think about things across a couple of generations. Yeah, um, because it is hard to do a lot of things in a single lifetime. Yeah, and, and you see that more in Europe. You say Ireland and in New Zealand, where. A, consider ourselves to be a new culture yeah. and we don't respect 
how long things can actually take to to build up. Um, so, and, and that's why housing, for example, they'll build to last longer overseas because they might already have lived in a house that was from the 1600s. It's true, yeah. You know, yeah. where here we the oldest house might be. 20 years or 30 years yeah. old so we get into this short term mm. mindset um, I so, worked as a builder in a house that was 400 years old yeah 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 so I think we lack that um, long term um, well, what thinking. you lack in that you gain in um, sort of new energy yes yeah. yeah it's true there's a pro and con it's like a 20 year old man full of beans but doesn't have the, um, the, the experience yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, you, you're right. We're not um, stuck in the mud as yeah, such. Bound right. by tradition. Yeah, bound by tradition. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there is a pro and con. To everything, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that was one thing that I was really impressed by was the passive home mm. thing. Um, also, um, Mr. Chippy, all the locals, anyone, mm. local listeners will recognise Mr. Chippy, the van that goes around. Yep. Um, talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so uh, Mr. Chippy's uh, actually in at the workshop at the moment with a broken valve, sadly. But um, he, it's a little uh, Japanese um, key car mini truck. Yeah. Um, and so the key car is a in Japan. There's a very strict micro car rule set. Uh, the engine has to be no bigger than six hundred and sixty cc's. Oh, is that um, right? yeah. yeah, and and the actual dimensionality of the of the actual cars have to be of a certain size or smaller. And then the actual backs of the little trucks uh, isn't designed for Japanese agriculture and all their very small old roads. Mm. So you wouldn't be able to get two normal cars passed on a lot of Japanese ah, mountain yeah. roads. Um, and they're made to fit exactly a certain number of like vegetable crates and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So again, back to that industrial design thing. Love kind of and environmentally. Absolutely. Yeah, love yeah. love everything about key cars because yeah. they embody trying to set constructive rules to reduce costs and energy. And yeah. When these vehicles automatically have fifty percent less embodied energy. Yeah. Than a bigger, you know, funny enough, I often make. The comparison because my option, other option would have been let's say a Hilux or yeah um, I literally would carry way more than a standard work Hilux that was yeah. driving around you would yeah, yeah. so you know that movement of embodied energy in our bigger vehicles is, is crazy yeah um, when you really look at it being again I'm a functionalist um, so yeah Mr Chippy's a 20 year old actually came from Osaka I found out because someone read some of the Japanese um, oh, writing yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yes I, I bought it to um, deliver mulch and compost being small into people's backyards and places like that and um, also pick up um, food waste from around the community and again it's part of my journey about understanding from an environmental perspective I saw waste as a very low hanging fruit to change mm-hmm. um, so just literally, it's because it's like a gate, a Y gate, a binary situation. It either goes to landfill or it goes somewhere constructive, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's a very simple flicking of a, mm-hmm. it's a choice. It's, that's all it is. And yeah. so it's like, right, well, why aren't we, you know, managing our waste streams? You know, mm-hmm. what's, is it really difficult? And so that's when I got into hot composting because I was like, well, is this waste stream as difficult as, as it's made out to be by yeah the powers that be and it isn't it's extremely simple yeah to manage is it very labor intensive or? No, no no i mean you, you literally got the microbes 
yeah. doing the work for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, I have a little tractor, but it's a twenty thousand dollar yeah. tractor. I, I could sounds crazy, but I could comfortably manage all the food wastes of Queenstown through hot composting. Yeah, um, but yeah, there's just a lot of other. So actually, so funny enough, the biggest issue is probably movement, is is transportation, mm-hmm. and all the biggest cost. So that's why I focus more on most of the time having people as part of their systems delivering food waste. Um, yeah. But I, I do also pick well, it they, up. Well, they've got to get rid of their waste one way or another. Yeah. yeah. It's part of that journey. Um, I've also looked at what is the reality around separation of food waste for, for people and so mm. forth. Interesting enough, I'm not that into um, people having green bins at their homes because actually the most challenging, most expensive part of waste is con- contamination, um, be it recycling or or food waste. It's it's the fact that you've got other foreign materials mm. in there that actually cause the issues. So, so you're saying someone will have a green bin outside their house and they'll put the wrong stuff into yeah. it and it won't decompose. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of expense. You can already see it at the recycling station and separation technology. You're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars um, just to separate someone's home bin decision. And it also degrades the value of the um, packs of final recycled goods that are shipped out. So in my case, what I've found, let's say we're, we're in shot of a country suburb now, yeah. is that you have, like it was in the old days with the bottle banks, you actually have drop-off locations. And let's say then only 50% of that suburb engage with that mm. model mm. But at least it's fifty percent. As soon as someone has to take that goods to another place, they care. Yeah, uh, you've actually you've generated a filter. Yeah, that type of person is not going to uh, put some. You're not going to purposely walk all the way to the end of the street to put a nappy in a yeah. vegetable bin. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So anyway, so that's um, then the question arises. So if you've got an area in shot of a country, for example, like you might have issues with rodents. Uh, or... Rodents. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I am. Um, um, so there needs to be some kind of funding. Or, yeah, yeah, you yeah. need to have a, a still a controlled yeah. environment for drop off. Um, but it's it's it is surprising. So things that we consider to be bad smells are just the goods being held in a, a bad environment, to put it simply. Mm-hmm. So like when we get a stinky bin in the house, mm-hmm. it's only stinky because it's gone what's called anaerobic mm-hmm. um, rather than aerobic. So anaerobic means lack of oxygen. Yeah. versus having oxygen and so um, yeah that's that's true I only realised that as you said because our composting we used to do composting in our garden mm. and it didn't smell bad no it actually smells weirdly good yeah so a healthy compost is actually quite pleasant and yeah. but you'll be amazed at what the stinkiness of the stuff was that possibly went into it the day before but mm. by the time it's gone been ox- oxygenated it gets quite happy yeah so if it's a local system, you've just got to put in place either a relatively quick pickup yeah. model or you add brown, which is the carbon. Um, you, you create like a sawdust base or yeah. you, do, you do things that can stop the cardboard. on-site cardboard. Yep. Yeah. Just things that stop the on-site stinkiness. Um, just like a long drop, have a carbon ventilation if you need to. But, I mean, even that's getting a bit complicated. Um, just simply... It just needs to be a bin at the end of the road that gets picked up on a weekly basis. Um, it doesn't smell in a week. Or it does a little bit, but not anything. Yeah. So, yeah, so I played with the idea of ambassador bins. So, you know, people that care could even house the bins out their front gate 
text when the bins were going to be ready for pickup. I work with Smart Environmental and so forth because you need a bin pickup yeah. bin machine, which I don't have on my little truck. Um, There's only so much one man can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I wanted to see how far you could do it yeah. in my part time too, and it just showed how it's not that yeah. unobtainable. Um, yeah, yeah. And but yeah, I, I just want you to do with Mr. Chippy, and you you go around from restaurant to restaurant, pick up their waste, and it's yeah, mainly in Aritown. Yeah, yeah. Because um, again, just talking about the cost of transport, transport and yeah. movement and um, um, but I go to for example pack and save actually that's a really positive story um, yeah. because I'd started that as a post-COVID initiative really mm-hmm. and I was sitting aside um, Kiwi Harvest which is the local another great example of the, the binary gate system you know that's stopping food going to waste and actually going to Salvation Army buses yeah. and blessings um, so that utilises it for people and then I was going to say well what's left over and that's what I did to begin with was picking up everything that they didn't yeah. which was about two tonnes a week um, from sorry that's from a number of supermarkets and yeah. so forth um, but it was three if you had one hour for uh, pick up you had two hours for de-packaging it took that long you know yoghurt bottles yeah. of milk so a lot of you suddenly realise how much food is is packaged. Yeah. Um, so that was quite interesting. But anyway, just with the example of say pack and save, is I started off supporting their pickup 12, 12 240 liter bins of food waste mm. a, a week, and then a lot of the journeys around waste is actually awareness. Yeah. And so then because they had the potential to separate, they start to understand because it normally just went into a big skip. So you, you didn't really understand what, apart from the overall weight, you didn't yeah. know what the weight was made up of. And so I was able to feedback that, you know, weekly data and, and visually they could see it because they could see what was going into those bins. Yeah. So I saw that change from 12 to 8. I think part of that too was also the ordering systems post-COVID because we suddenly had totally different buying um, techniques, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think that's had a bit, bit to play as well. But... um. But recently it went down by like another 50%, four bins a week now. Yeah. Um, and the exciting thing was was them recently introducing all the Kiwi harvest models of, of food diversion to oh, Salvation Army yeah. and so forth. So your waste is, is halved. My waste is halved, yeah. 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 Um, so that is a really nice traceable journey showing food. The, the impact food. of someone like Kiwi harvest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Utilisation. Yeah. Um, and that's only one side of their story. One side is like waste reduction, but the other side is they're feeding people in need. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what was happening is that um, like, so a lot of bread is generated as a waste stream and then that you can't just fill a banana box for a, a family as three quarters white bread. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so there was always the things that were maybe kind of overproduced. But again, once you separate yeah. it, you can actually say, okay, we're, way, we're making way too many shibatas or something yeah you know and and you can start to feed that back to the front of house yeah and, right yeah 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 so it's been really cool i mean what baskets of blessings do and yeah kiwi harvest and happiness house and i mean that that whole journey of yeah support you know is, is amazing yeah um, but yeah so my, my waste journey was actually just about awareness so my hope and i think there's some traction to start to happen is because i've broken that ice other parties that can afford the more expensive consent processes and larger, slightly more industrial methodologies yeah. can come into play and 
Well, that's how you over. mentioned uh, Royal Burn earlier, and they're probably a very good example because maybe they have the budget to try these things. Yeah. When you speak about your mum being um, the bleeding edge as opposed to the leading edge, mm. they're trying things that aren't really tested on the market yet. Yep. So they're taking those massive risks, and that's the baby steps towards change. Yep. If they can prove it works, then other people are going to try the same model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's a lot easier to um, to replicate something once it's been um, yeah. pioneered, I guess, um, and proven. Yeah. And that's why, like I say, show that you can take buffet, f- two tons of buffet food waste, yeah, and turn it into something that look, looks like soil in two weeks. Yeah. Um, kind of shows. And um, I suppose. In today's world, but there's so much information at people with the internet, everything like that, it's become almost hard not knowing what to believe, mm. what's true and what's not. And mm. maybe that's the value of what you're doing is you're putting things into practice yeah. and trying and testing these theories and proving, yeah, well, it can be done. Yeah. yeah. Another example was all the leaf litter of Arrowtown, being an autumnal town, yeah. famous for it, was going to landfill. You know, so being driven, you know, 40 kilometre round trip, yeah. To at a cost of I think it was about four hundred dollars a truck. Yeah. Um so I said, Oh hang on, just drive past my place and drop it off. And yeah, it composted all the leaf litter of, of Arrowtown in the same pile. Wow. Um and the one I'm trying recently is actually jib it's a j- gypsum, jib it's building material. Building material, yeah. it's the sheet on the inside of houses. Um there's been a massive chip shortage. In yeah, there was. Yeah. Um, so that, that has a waste stream. Uh, so a smart environmental, I had some dropped off. And I've just tried, with, again, my own little tractor, smashing it up because um, it's got gypsum, lime, and calcium. So I can add that into the um, hot compost mix. The lime helps break down. Yes, yeah, yeah the lime can help. Yeah. Uh, pH levels and so I, I do everything as kind of citizen science you know I don't over analyse I observe so yeah. I, I do something and there's a chance it won't work but see that's what a lot of bureaucratic processes don't allow for is failure Yeah, if you fail it's unacceptable so the council works mm. in a model where any form of failure is unacceptable it still happens yeah. but they they're trying to avoid it. We're trying to avoid it, where yeah. it's actually not a bad thing. You know, if something's not quite yeah, certain infrastructure things, you can't have that happen. But there's a lot of instances that that risk consideration could be mm. adopted and save millions of dollars of um, of over engineering. Yeah. I guess is the best way to put it. It's mm. hard for people to take those risks because they lose their position in government. Or exactly, yeah, yeah that's right. A lot of employment positions. Yeah. Um, You'd lose your job if you fail, uh, made made something that's a mistake. Yeah. It's um, the model is what's wrong, it's not yeah. the people, yeah. No, no, it's not the people, no, not yeah. at all. It's the yeah, the way they're expected to operate. My father was a heli- it's a he- was a helicopter pilot. And um you know, so it could have been very easy for me to back back in the eighties here you used to have helicopters parked in your front yard yeah. because of the deer hunting. Yeah, um, yeah. World, but that's a whole industry that we've um, yeah. lost touch with. I mean, used to be in the basin, you'd see deer flying across the yeah. landscape. I watched a documentary about it back yeah. in the seventies. Yeah, it? yeah. Um, so you did. You had choppers in your front yards. Um, yeah, but um, sorry, I say that because um, yeah, it could have been very easy for me to be a pilot, yeah. for example. But I'm, I can't because I can't 
consistently do the same thing over and over again. Yeah. You know, pilots about being very meticulous about yeah. not changing anything, being very systematic. Yeah, for safety reasons. Yeah, for safety yeah. reasons. So my personality type, I'd be thinking about how I could do it differently yeah. every time I went around the helicopter. Yeah, it'd be a lot more fun, but... Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so we all have our own strengths, you know, yeah. so I'm good at starting stuff up, but I'm not... I wouldn't define myself as, a say, a good general manager who's yeah. very much about that consistency of process and yeah. systems and, and enjoy you know we all have our own yeah. things we enjoy yeah so. and that's why you need a diverse community yep. to make things work yeah yep. so I don't think anyone should ever feel um, despondent about them not yeah say being really entrepreneurial yeah if they're really good with numbers it's like well actually you're really important because yeah. you'll control and manage and support a person who yeah. might be um Every one of us are born equal, pretty much, you know? Yeah, we are, yeah. The same opportunity to evolve. Yep. And everyone does evolve in different yep. ways yep. and has different strengths. Yep. And there's no there's no way one is more valuable than another. They just no. have different uses. That's right, that's yeah. right. And so, yeah, exactly. And so we all just need... And, and I think all these journeys are very much team, you know, team-based yeah. or, yeah. they're you know, like... um. I had a design company. I set up a design company in Wellington when I was younger as well, and that was more websites and branding and stuff like yeah. that. And we set that up as a collective. But that was, again, everyone had their strengths, you know? Yeah. Um, the really good coders generally can't communicate. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so they need someone to support them in their, you know... That's something I've been learning with my business of trying to do everything and obviously I, some areas are not my skills. Mm, and they really burn you out, the ones that you yeah. find hard. Oh, they suck all your energy because yeah. it's, it's so difficult to achieve yeah. them. And yeah. then you spend all your time doing the thing that you're not actually good at. Mm, so mm. it's learning how to delegate and... Not be afraid to ask for help. Yeah, yeah, mm. I struggle with that too. I'm too proud sometimes. Mm. But that, that's something, yeah, you need to learn. And, and maybe, again, I'll nearly speak on behalf, but just watching um, Nadia and Carlos with that farm and then mm. a farm shop and there's the chickens and the sheep and the different products and then Nadia is a chef and master chef and you know yeah. TV programs and books and magazines and, and it's re- really been interesting watching that entrepreneurial environment, their ability to build teams, you know, and, mm. and not create supportive groups of people and the yeah. reality of it. You might have seen, yeah, a little bit more behind the scenes, but I would have thought, how does she achieve so much? I've got mm. a lot of things going on and that's probably exactly how. Yeah. Delegating and creating teams and trusting people. Absolutely. And I must say, yeah, an incredible work ethic <laughs> like yeah. she is. Um, and really good at closing things off, finishing things. Yeah, right. Whereas I'm more in the real creative end of things. Like I'm pretty airy fairy on a lot of... I get fed from the creative process. Yeah. I don't really care if it ends or not or what happens to it. I'm, yeah, um, I'm very much the same. Um, I have to finish things. Yes. Um, well, for, for business, um, I have to finish things. Absolutely. But I get really into a project and then halfway through, my mind starts drifting to, oh, I wonder if I tried it this way. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. I'll down and get it done. That's right. Yeah, so it's that capacity to close, is, to be creative and close is, is, a, is a challenge, yeah. Yeah, so if you could just um, collaborate with a closer and you could start things and they could close it and it'd be a match made in heaven, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, in my early startup kind of spaces, you know, I've, I've found it incredibly important to have um, a good accountant 
um, you know, someone who really understands numbers and because that was, yeah, and that became a really nice balance because if you've got a group, say a board, <laughs> for better terms, that's mm. um, half creative and half equivalent of accountancy type mindsets, there's a really healthy tension um, because someone's risk adverse and someone's risk taking yeah um and you need that that tension yeah it's a constructive tension yeah. so yeah it's always i guess i'm yeah i think it's important that we all like say ce- celebrate our strengths and and don't be afraid to you know team up with people around you that's great mm. advice yeah mm. so i touched on the um mr chippy and also touched on your passive home um what you're really consumed in is wilding and co yeah yeah the um, wilding pine world yeah yeah and this is maybe a bit alien to a lot of people, mm. what you're actually doing and how you're doing it. So if you could kind of uh, share to our listeners, firstly, give context of what's happening here with the deforestation and then uh, your processes and what you're doing. Cool. Yeah. So um, probably, again, growing up here possibly gives a bit more um, understanding mm. to, to an environmental change because you can watch and see the change so over a 40 year 40 year period so what in New Zealand generally or the alpine landscapes of New Zealand in particular is an issue now with what is introduced uh, conifer and pine species from Europe and America bought here for forestry and erosion control uh, but because of the lack um, environmental competition yeah we come from a world without mammals um, a lot of certain types of insects fungi you know lots of different things so those introduced pine species which where they come from are what are called pioneering species so let's say post-glacial times ice age that's why america's pine forests because they were the fast adopting uh species so um so they're very good at taking over bare landscape and so when brought to new zealand which is then a mammal free uh also very slow growing tree species alpine landscapes without any real tree cover partly because of what's happened historically with burning and other reasons they've got this kind of smorgasbord of land to just consume to their heart's content so so these trees well funny enough because they've been here for 120 years, let's say, the trees, but it's really only in the last 40 that this wilding issue has really presented itself. Mm. <clears throat> and um, they actually think it's due to the f- microhoriza, so the fungi. And so New Zealand didn't have the right fungi for these trees. And then they actually bought that fungi to New Zealand um, with the trees to help them grow better. And oh. And it's probably through the spores moving all over the tussock landscape that suddenly the uh, trees can the germinate. The spores precondition the land yep. to accept the growth of the trees. Yeah. So, for example, in our native trees, the beech and manuka and so forth need a, a certain fungal balance in the soil for them to actually grow. So, yeah, so it's looking like that might be the have been the case yeah. for the pines as well. And so what happens is... Because we don't have squirrels, we don't have, you know, insects that eat seeds from these trees, every single pine tree that grows germinates seed does so on a factor of a thousand times more than a, a tree in yeah. America, for example. Someone's taught me, it may be true or not, that a pine needle on the right day could travel up to 40 kilometres. Yeah, that's correct. So the seed uh, with the right wind conditions will be blown from the tree and go up the mountain and fly into the into up into the like a, like a paraglider does up yeah. in the thermals and then it'll they've done genetic coding you know 
20k down the lake on the other side of the lake that shows that tree has come from near Arthur's Point. Yeah, well. So, um, so yeah, so that's the it's scary. It's a difficult thing to control. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting because then, then you talk about like can happen in a lot of parts of the world deem as environmental issues or environmental problems. So in New Zealand, we've got issues with rats and possums and pine trees and rabbits. A, and rabbits. Yeah, and it's all when they've got you've all got an unbalanced system and um, yeah, free, freedom freedom to roam mm. and um, then when you look at solutions it's really important to understand there is no silver bullet it's always going to take a myriad of active systems be it possums or wilding pines a team like ourselves what I worked on was the pain point is you can't let the tree grow to being big because then it makes more seeds, seeds. so the whole problem was is that you can't turn it into a pine forest and, and, and get the lumber value as part of your control process. Yeah. So um, we work preferably with the small trees, so Christmas trees, and we literally term it Christmas in a bottle because what we do is we then steam distill the needle of the small trees and pretty much a Christmas tree works out to be one 5 mil essential oil bottle <laughs> so so it is literally a christmas tree in a bottle yeah um and so i think about one of those bottles last christmas oh excellent yeah, yeah 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 so um we um are currently removing the wilding spread trees so these smaller trees from the back face of um mount jewa yeah. um, so if you live in arthur's point and watch these random helicopters segueing back to the fact i grew up with helicopters in the backyard and deer movements mm. I actually took that technology and now we, we actually use helicopters to yeah. fly the uh, trees the, an area down to our processing site. It's a little bit like history repeating itself. Yeah, yeah and you might say well that sounds really extreme and expensive um, but we work to the seconds we work to, so we use the tool being the helicopter which is very expensive per hour mm. but we only need it for an hour yeah. And, and it saves your labour, our safety, and possibly, like, say, 40 hours of a tractor or digger yeah. that would have had done moved the same amount of trees out of the mountains, you see. So, so um, the fuel consumption will be less as well. Yeah, um, I, yeah, exactly. It's only a couple of hundred litres versus a couple of thousand, mm. you know. While it sounds exorbitant, <laughs> it's actually cheaper to use a helicopter to, in a mountainous environment because yeah. um, it's as the crow flies, you see. So it sounds like such a crazy concept. I know it's not because you've done it, but before it was done, it must. How did you come up with that idea? Or has yeah. it been done before? Or there were probably two. There was a yeah coming from the deer. Yeah. live recovery. Yeah. So you had literally half. But the idea for me, sorry, is like a, ma- oh. a big tree being reduced into this oh, tiny little, bottle. oil. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, sorry. Yeah. So that that happened again. So become aware of the problem. Uh, look at all the possible solutions, which there really weren't any of. And it just so happened that I'd been interested in essential oil and perfume, and it's probably a bit too deep to go into that whole journey. Yeah. But you could say it possibly again segues from the fact that mum was making wine, and yeah. so I got used to smelling things. Um, but It's all sort of interconnected. Yeah, it is interconnected. Um, but uh, And a few steps in between. Even the fact I was doing websites... Um, I did it for a scientific IRL, which is now Callaghan, which is a big scientific part of the government. I was doing all the websites and I started learning about their scientific extraction technologies. They were 
wow. having and yeah. so so yeah so I'd been playing with some native plants and I had make a native perfume compound that Naitahu have, have used for making a, a perfume product yeah and um and I used that same methodology with the pine trees mm. and I'd made some connections overseas and and sent them to them and said hey what about this and then they said, yeah, great, can you make 10 tonnes? And I think I'd made maybe a kilogram at that stage. Um, but and you were like, yes. Yeah, pretty much. And, um, um, yeah, yeah. what do you call that when you, um, yeah, don't know what you're getting yourself in for kind of thing. Um, yeah. It's an important part of entrepreneurship. It's, yeah. It's not, not knowing what you're actually it's like say yes, say yes first and, and figure out how to do it later. Mm. Mm. Exactly. So, um, yeah, so we, um, yeah, set up a system and it was um, all had to be made ourselves because there was no industry in New Zealand. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then over the last six years of consumed probably a couple of hundred thousand wilding pines in this way and... Um, and that's actually an example from an environmental perspective. See, if I, I had to find an international partner to work at scale. Yeah. Because if I just did it as a cottage industry. It's not viable. No, I mean, not not from an environmental perspective. So, yeah. So I, if I was to make my own little business. It wouldn't. I, have no. An impact on the problem. Exactly. Yeah. I would have. And what we do in a third of a day would take me a year to, 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 to yeah. sell but we work for 250 days of a year yeah um, so that's all about making connections and, and yeah yeah yep. and um, finding a so with the company we, we work we sell it to is called doTERRA over in the states and they then market it and distribute it and sell it pretty much around the world um, and so we we can only make enough for that one one yeah. business relationship and then wow so I think we're going to wrap it up here so there were some of the thoughts of a man who's a real positive force for good change within this community and I'm super grateful he came on here to share so thanks Michael we did go on to chat for another couple of hours so um, if the demand is there if there's some good feedback I might just upload a part two with Michael Sly thanks for listening go down to the water. Wash those thoughts away